That's some sensational catch. Absolutely brilliant from Hooper. Was hit back firmly by Maiello. Hammered down the ground. It could fly all the way for a maximum. It's going to soar into the sky. That's the six they needed. That's 50 for Furbrush. What a knock that is from him. Outstanding striking. And that six brings Guernsey back into the game. Could be a catch. What a catch. One-handed grab. And that's Josh Butler, the captain. Oh, my days. We have been treated to some catches in this tournament. Welcome to Under the Covers, Guernsey Cricket's very own podcast. I'm Ben Furbrush, Guernsey Cricket Development Manager. And on this podcast, we will be chatting to players old and new, coaches, administrators, and other cricketing keen beans along the way. On today's episode, we welcome on T20 franchise specialist, Harry Gurney. So welcome to the podcast, Harry Gurney, born on October the 25th, 1986 in Nottingham. Uh, what's your earliest childhood cricket memories? I think I was first introduced to it as about a 10 or 11 year old. I played a little bit of like rounders and quick cricket and stuff at primary school. But um, a mate of mine was a member of Loughborough Town Cricket Club and um, he said to me, why don't you come down to to Nets? So I did. I went down to Winter Nets, it was, at Loughborough Grammar School and um, completely just fell head over heels in love with it and uh, never looked back really. Yeah, nice. So uh, you mentioned Loughborough Town, CC. What are your memories of that and when did you make your sort of first team debut? Was it a case of building your way through the age group ranks into the second team, third team, etc.? Yeah, so I started off playing for the under-11s, uh, you know, like pairs, I think even eight-a-side stuff, pairs stuff, incredible stuff, and then into the under-13s, 15s. From there, I went into, I used to play some sort of Sunday friendlies for um, a local team, not actually Loughborough Town, um, although they did use that ground sometimes. Um and then I also played for another team, um, a largely uh, Indian team called Naviug. Really fond memories of playing with those guys. Um, they used to teach me uh, all sorts of stuff in Gujarati. I found it hilarious when I regurgitated it. Yeah, so then I broke into the Loughborough Town second team, which would have been, God, I'd be guessing, probably 14, 15, something like that. I don't know. And then um, reasonably quickly on into the first team. And again, just some really, really fond memories of two or three years there up until when I went off to uni where we were pretty dominant in the league as well. There were, there were, it was sort of us and two other teams, one called Kibworth, one called Market Harbour, really. And uh, we were always competing for the title and for the cups. And um, I remember going to Grace Road and winning the County Cup final there and winning the League Cup final. And yeah, we, you know, we just, it was a bunch of, a bunch of mates. We're still all in touch now regularly. And um we used to just go out, go out after every game on a Saturday night round Loughborough and um, yeah, really a really great period actually. And alongside that with school cricket, you mentioned primary school cricket. What about secondary school? Was there a big cricketing scene <clears throat> you then? Not at all actually. I went to, uh, so the secondary, I went to a school called Holywell Primary where I didn't play any cricket. Uh, in fact, there was a cricket team. I didn't get picked for it. And then I went to a school called Garandon High School um, just up the road and they had one cricket team. It was years seven, eight and nine, three years school. And um, there was one cricket team for all three years. And I can remember going to practice, but I don't remember. I think I, actually that's a lie. I do remember playing one game. But the majority of my early years cricket was at club level. And I can just remember sitting at school, staring out the window, thinking, God, please don't rain. You know, I was just desperate to get down to Loughborough Town Nets that night. Um, just completely obsessed with the game, really. And, and then I was fortunate at the age of, sort of 14, 15 to go to Loughborough Grammar School, which is like a fee-paying fee school in Loughborough, um, where the sporting facilities and the availability of coaching and um, 
teams really i mean there were three teams per age group as opposed to one for three years at, at garrandon and then that's where i got involved in more in school cricket when i went there and um you know continued learning the game really playing for loughborough town on saturdays until the summer holidays then i'd go back and play for loughborough um and concurrently with that i was playing i was i was selected for leicestershire under 12s um was the first age group i was selected for and then and then sort of was working my way up through the age groups in that as well with with uh, Leicestershire then, how did that system look then? Was it very much a structured sort of practice or was it just sort of, we obviously have a link with Sussex in Guernsey. Uh, theirs is mm. very much like a huge districts area and they're broken down into little districts. What's Leicester's mm. sort of set up? Yeah, similar. So I was I was captain of the North West at the trials and essentially they got whittled down to 44 players. What You know, a, a team of 11 or not, not even 48, 12 from each of the four districts in Leicestershire. Yeah. Um, and we went and played each other in a little round robin tournament over a weekend. Um, and from that, they select the final trial, which was, I think, 22 players. And we went and played, uh, they whittled it down to 22 players. And we went and played a game against each other in final sort of trial for the under 12s. And I'll, I'll never forget, I bowled like a drain, actually. But um, smack 40-odd, believe it or not, <laughs> I used to be able to bat and field in those days. Um, and uh, I think that's what, that's what ended up getting me into the team. Right, and then um, alongside that, obviously, like you said, you went to Leeds Bradford UCCE. One, what did you study? Uh, and two, how did this sort of come about? Was it that you definitely wanted to go to, obviously, a cricketing uni? Yeah, so I read economics and, yeah, I did. I mean, I wanted a degree, uh, but I also, cricket was my, certainly my priority. Um, so had I not been born and bred in Loughborough, that probably would have been top of my list. Um, given that at the time and probably still to this day, Loughborough is the strongest uni team, certainly in terms of facilities and that kind of stuff. So, uh, but I wasn't going to go to Loughborough because I was, I was literally born and bred a stone's throw from right. from the university campus. So, um, it was in the end down to I wasn't going to go to Oxford or Cambridge. Uh, I didn't fancy Cardiff, so it was essentially down to either Leeds or Durham, and decided to go with Leeds. Um, and yeah, again, just absolutely loved it had an amazing time um making some great memories and from a cricketing perspective i remember it was um i remember going in my first year and thinking god you know i wonder whether i'll get picked going to the trials being a bit nervous i had a bit of a bad back i couldn't really bowl properly and um the coaches were saying don't worry we've spoken to leicestershire we know what the situation is whatever blah blah blah, blah. anyway i got selected thankfully this would have been autumn of my first year i suppose you sort of arrive in september don't you and and um trials were pretty much straight away for the, for the squad the next year I guess and so went through the winter training program that winter I got picked each UCC has three three games or did at the time had three games against counties each season um, our first one was against Yorkshire at Headingley and I got selected and to be honest I wasn't expecting to be selected so it was a real honour and, and, and Michael Vaughan turned up who was a test captain at the time um, he turned up for a game for Yorkshire and I, and I, I got him out very early on first or second over of the match um, caught behind and I remember uh, it was on it was going across the banner on Sky Sports News and they sent a reporter to Headingley and all this kind of stuff and it was just you know one of the best one of the best days you know best days ever you know up until that point because you know it was saying you know first wicket of the county season Michael Vaughan caught behind mm-hmm. off bowling you know student you know Harry Gurney um, and uh, that was it yeah that was quite a sort of big moment for me really and then we went on to play I think Worcester we played Worcester at at Harrogate and this is at the point where I got signed by Leicester because I bowled well against Yorkshire at Headingley I got Jack Rudolph out Vaughan out and someone else can't remember who bowled a lot of overs Rich Browning my opening 
partner pulled his hamstring, I think, in, in like his third over or something. So I've had 30 odd, 37 overs or something like that in that first inning. And then a couple of weeks later, we were at, at Harrogate playing against Worcester. And um, again, bowled nicely. I don't remember getting a huge amount of wickets, but bowled nicely. And they sort of suggested that if Leicestershire weren't going to sign me, then they would um, they'd have a serious look at me and have me down mm-hmm. for some second team cricket and that kind of stuff. And as soon as Leicester got wind of that, um, they then offered me a contract. So with that, were you uh, involved in Leicester's academy or was there no such thing as like an academy at that time? Yeah, there was. The first academy intake was probably when I was ooh, 16. That was the first ever academy intake and I wasn't picked on it. Joe was pretty annoyed about it, to be honest. I remember being quite annoyed about it at the time and um, started actually considering looking elsewhere. But then in the second year, probably must have been when I was about 17, I guess, um, I was picked on the academy. So yeah, I went. I was on the academy and went off to went off to Leeds and then as I say fairly early on into my first season with Leeds Bradford which would have been 2006 I think April-ish May-ish 2006 Leicester offered me a a, a three-year contract which was summer contracts yeah so it was July July, August September every year while I was at uni I think it was four grand in the first year five grand in the second year and seven grand in the third year or something I just felt like the richest the richest student in town (laughs) because You know, I'd uh, I had my student loan while I was at uni, and then I'd go home and earn this. Wow, this like wow, four yeah. grand in three months. Wow, it's amazing just to play cricket. You know, you buy some um, serious amount of VK oranges with that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So uh, from there, you also made your first team debut for Leicester after that was in 2007. So uh, quite a, a frustrating year for you. you. Seemed to be out injured for the majority of that year, uh, and then managed to make your debut right near the back in the season. I think it was against Northants. What are your memories of that game? My memories of that game are a couple of things. Um, it was also a debut for a guy called Sam Cliff, who I'd played a fair bit of second team cricket with, but he didn't know it was going to be his debut. He was impressed. He was a painter and decorator. He was <laughs> in Preston painting a petrol station or something. Um, and someone got injured. So they rang him at like eight o'clock that morning and said, can you get to, can you get to Grace Road? We want you to make your first class debut. So he did. He just about made it down in time. Um, and he played. And from a personal perspective, I remember I got uh, I got Niall O'Brien out in both innings. So Niall O'Brien was my my first and my second first class wicket. And yeah, I just remember just being so proud of you know loving playing a proper professional game game on a county ground with advertising boards and umpires, and it was uh, a special time. Yeah, the the actual uh, UCC games. One, I'm not sure actually if they was it last year. They obviously didn't do them because of COVID. Um, and I think mm. they're actually starting to lose them. As a student, mm. that must obviously be a like a real honour going to play those games, but almost mm. something that you fear as a professional because it's kind of like early season, swing around corners. You haven't really got anything to win in those sorts of games. Whereas as a student, you've got nothing to lose. Yeah, as a student, it's the pinnacle of your season. You know, you it's your opportunity if you've not got a contract to to try and get one. If you have got one, to to show everyone what you've got. You also have an air, an air a slight trepidation around them even as a student just because you know you're going to do some time in the dirt yeah. um because <laughs> uh yeah the counties the counties tend to get their middle time out you know if it's a three day you'll probably you'll probably be in the field for over two days of the three days you know because they'll they'll skittle you and then and then or they'll bat for a day and a half and they'll skittle you and then they'll have a bat again on the third day you know to get to get middle time for the guys that haven't in the first innings is generally how it goes and as a County cricketer, it's it's not as bad as a bowler to be honest. Um, I think the batters the batters are a bit nervous early season. Uh, some student running in and, and nibbling it around at seventy five mile an hour, and you know someone like a uh, an Alex Hales who's 
maybe been playing a test match you know, that winter or whatever, all of a sudden getting nicked off by by some bloke from Loughborough Uni. <laughs> um, but for a bowler, you know, actually, it's you know, you get your 15, 20 overs in, you get your workloads done. If you bowl there or thereabouts, you might pick up a few cheap wickets as well. So you can't really go wrong as a bowler, but as a batter, yeah, you can. Uh, it can be, can be a bit embarrassing, I suppose. Yeah, and then following on from from the uh, your debut and everything else, two thousand nine was sort of a bit of a strange year. So after you mentioned there, you had three summer sub- contracts uh, while studying. Uh, you're actually released by Leicester um, and then invited back to prove yourself the following April, which you initially mm. declined to do, and then and then you said yes in the end. How was that? So I was in the final year of my contract, which must have been six, six or seven, oh eight, was it yeah. end of 08 season? Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, and there's a, there's a system in county cricket where I think it might have actually just changed with the new player contracts, but you, there's something called a 28 days notice. So if I'm in the last year of my contract at Leicester, someone like a Knotts can put in 28 days notice with Leicester. It means that if Leicester, if I haven't signed a contract with Leicester within 28 days, Knotts are allowed to speak to me. And vice versa, as a player, you can you can put your 28 days in on yourself. So in that final year, I'll never forget myself and Wayne White both went to the chief exec and said, we're putting in our 28 days notice because you've not offered us a contract. It's August and we need to know, you know, we're unemployed in two months time. We want to know what crack is. And um, I'll never forget David Smith, the chief exec at the time, um, gave us both a letter the next day saying, thanks for your notice. Uh, we're not sure whether we're going to offer you a contract yet, but you're more than welcome to speak to other counties immediately, if you like, which I still to this day find was a bit strange because you know if I'd have been in this position whether I was unsure or not probably would have used the 28 days to to, to yeah. make a decision but anyway he didn't my agent um, set up a meeting with Mick Newell and a meeting with Ashley Giles who was head coach or I think he was head coach at the time of Warwickshire he was battle director of cricket pretty sure he was head coach at the time I met Mick in the Larwood and Bose pub at Trent Bridge he taught me through exactly oh no hold on i've jumped ahead here i've jumped ahead jumped ahead i'll come back to this so 2008 i got released as you say yeah i've jumped ahead i got released in 2008 i'll never forget sitting in the in the room and being told because i think it was phil Whittaker was sat the other side of the table and he told me and i just don't remember anything he said after the after you know the the words you know we're, we're not offering you a new contract uh, it transpired that they wanted me to they didn't want to offer me a contract, but they wanted me to go off to South Africa and um, spend a winter in a place called Potchefstroom, come back on trial the next year. And I thought they were taking the mickey a little bit, to be honest. Um, so sort of declined it and, um, and and went off and thought I'll try and back myself to get a contract elsewhere. By Christmas, I hadn't. So I went back in and spoke to David Smith, the chief exec, with my tail between my legs a little bit and said, look, you know, is the, is the offer still there? And he said, yeah. So I said, okay, cool, let's do it. So off I went to South Africa in sort of January, February that year for a couple of months. Had a great time in Poch, playing club cricket over there and training all week. And with Alex Wyatt, it was at the time. Um, yeah, came back in March, did pre-season. Started the season pretty well. Broke into the T20 team and did well in two or three games. And, uh, then, and then they offered me a, the rest of that year and then two more years after that. Um, as a as a contract and then that was that was a full proper contract so a bit of a rocky winter but I got myself to the point where uh 2009 yeah I had a contract up till the 2000 end of the 2011 season um 
But I'll never forget in that season, we were playing Northampton one night at home. It might have been 2010, the year after Matthew Hoggard had signed. I'd done really well in the T20s the year before. He wanted to drop me for himself. So he came around before the game and said, Harry, you're not playing, sorry. And you know, I was warming up and I was furious because I'd been the best bowler the year before. Um, and this was sort of my my format, if you like. He, uh, he went back, Boyce, who was nearby a mate of mine at the time, who was a batter, and said, Boyce, you're playing. Um, that was the balance of the team. And I'll never forget Nico and Claude Henderson, hearing that I wasn't playing, going to him, taking him to one side, literally five minutes before the toss. Uh, an animated conversation, and I found myself suddenly in the 11 a minute before the toss. <laughs> um, and I've never, to this day, I don't think, ever felt so much pressure going into a game because I knew that Nico and Claude had had stood up for me and, and sort of fought my corner. And I did. I bowled, I bowled really well and got two for, I don't know, two for 20-odd. Um, and that was, a, that was a really great feeling. Yeah, so um, 2011, so the year after was really like your breakthrough year. Uh, you, you finished as Leicester's leading wicket-taker in the T20 comp, but then unfortunately missed out on the T20 finals day uh, with a side strain. That must have been mm. pretty demoralising, sort of done all the hard work to get there and then not being able to, to celebrate that. Yeah, it was frustrating. I remember we won the quarter-final against Kent at Grace Road. Uh, it was absolutely packed. Abdul Razak went berserk, smacked it everywhere. We chased 205. We had a game, a random game in between against Essex, championship game. And I hadn't really played that much championship cricket up to this point. Um, I think I'd played 14 or 15 first-class games in total, including you know, a few uni games. I remember Andrew McDonald, who was the T20 captain at the time, and he wasn't going to play the championship game because he wasn't going to risk injury. I remember him saying to the coach, don't play Harry in this championship game. Like, be stupid too. We can't get promoted. We can't, whatever. Anyway, for whatever reason, probably because I'd had a good good phase in the T20 team, they picked me for that championship game, yeah, and I tore my side. Pretty uh, pretty heartbreaking. And I, I went to Edgebaston and sat in the stands and watched it. And, but I still had a great day and um, sat with my now wife, actually, um, up in the stands and watched it all. And then for the final... Um, few balls I went down to the changing room and I'll never forget oh god looking back it makes me cringe I had like a Leicestershire hoodie and jeans on and when the game ended we all just stormed onto the pitch and there's there's footage somewhere hopefully been deleted uh, <laughs> of me on the outfield at at, uh, at Edgebaston in, in jeans and a Leicester hoodie looking looking like a just an idiot um but, not quite yeah, great memories no, not quite, not quite, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, close. Was, was that the year um, where Nixon took that amazing one-handed grab at the end? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kyron Pollard, uh, Wayne White was the bowler. Yeah, it was an amazing year because our our semi against Lanks went to a super over, and then the second semi, which was uh, Somerset Hampshire, went to a super over as well. Right. Um, and then the final was a good game as well. Yeah. And it was one that Nico and Joss had some quite a lot of beef actually from memory and. Uh, Joss wouldn't shake his hand afterwards. <laughs> and then 2012 actually saw you leave Leicester uh, to move across mm. the Midlands to Nottinghamshire. You sort of touched on it before, but how did that come about? And, and was it an easy decision in the end? So I got to the point where I sat down with Mick in the Larwood. Let's um, say Leicester had said that I could speak to other counties. You know, had Leicester, had Leicester, when I put my 28 days notice in, had Leicester offered me in a two-year extension I'd have just signed it without even thinking yeah. you know I was doing well I was in the T20 team I was but they didn't for whatever reason so sat down with Mick and, fr and from the minute I walked out I sat with him for about an hour never forget he said do you want a drink we we're in the pub and I really wanted a pint but I didn't have a ball <laughs> so I just had a coke yeah he just talked about where he saw me fitting into the squad he said well I like to have eight bowlers 
Um, I like to have three groups of bowlers, a senior group, a middle-aged group and a young group. Uh, he said you would slot into the, the middle-aged group alongside people like Fletch, Andy Carter at the time. Uh, the seniors were Andre Adams, Paul Franks, Ben Phillips, those kind of guys. And I just never forget, I got up to walk out and he went, oh, um, we've not talked about money, Harry, but Derek, the chief exec's on holiday. He'll be in touch next week to talk about the numbers. But he said, it'll be a, it'll be a three-year contract. I just remember walking out. I've still got the text on my phone to this day that I sent to my family. Um, basically just saying, you know, get champagne on ice. I'm signing a three-year contract for not. So I hadn't, they hadn't even told me how much they were going to offer me. They could have offered me a yeah. quid. Phoned my agent and said, cancel the meeting with Ashley Giles. I'm, I'm signing for not. Right. Yeah. And then that also brought like a change in uh, fortunes in terms of uh, Red Bull cricket. So you actually took 21 wickets in 10 games uh, in comparison to the three wickets in one game for Leicestershire the year before. That was also in Division 1, whereas Leicestershire was in Division 2. Mm. One, how... How did you find the, the the change in divisions? And two, was that just a case of Leicester just thought you were just a, a white ball specialist at that time? Uh, or was that more of a case of, you know, you leading that as well? No, at the time that would have been them really. I mean, they, they very much saw me from my performances in the second team and, and stuff, I guess, as a as a white ball kind of bowler. But from the minute I signed for Knots, it was very much, a, you know, at that time, championship cricket was certainly a priority and, it was emphasised to me that they saw me as part of their plans in, in four-day cricket and they wanted to get me into the team. And my, my first game, I think it was my debut against Somerset at Trent Bridge. I think they got about 1,000. Um, Arrol Sapaya got, I think, a double hundred. Hildreth might have got a double hundred. And uh, I didn't get a wicket. And I can remember driving home thinking, oh, my God. Um, they must think I'm useless. And then second game, I played we played against Worcester at New Road and it was a bit overcast and it was swinging around and I, and I picked up a few wickets and um, that then gave me the confidence and some conversations with some senior bowlers around that time that I, I could offer a fair bit in the four-day game. In terms of the step-up in divisions, I was so inexperienced. I didn't really have, it's not like I was a seasoned Division 2 campaigner, to be honest, but the thing that I noticed or that I have noticed over the years, the difference between the divisions is the key is, is Franksy, is someone like a Franksy. So, yeah. A batter at number eight who's actually a, can score hundreds and a fourth bowling option who is a quality bowler. Um, yeah. You know, I'm not saying Franksy was the fourth bowling option, but that each Division One team just bats deeper and bowls deeper. You know, yeah. um, Division Two, everyone's got some good bowlers and some good batters, but they just don't have that depth. So if you can get through as a bowler or a batter to the, you get through to seven, eight, nine, ten as a bowler, you've got some... Some easier, easier wins probably than against a Division One team. And likewise, as a batter, if you can get through that new ball and see up the main bowlers, you've probably got some younger, more inexperienced guys to tuck into. Yeah, and then 2013, uh, you went even better. So you doubled your wickets tally to 42 wickets in the county championship, and then you were the leading wicket taker for Knotts, averaging 30, and then also got picked up by the England selectors to go and bowl at uh, England nets, the pre-Ashes nets. How was that? Yeah, it was amazing. So that the winter after my first season at Knotts, I went over to Sydney um, to play grade cricket for a team called Bankstown. Where are we? End of the 2012 season, so it must have been sort of October, November time, I went over to Australia um, and played grade cricket and it was one of the best things I've ever done because I was on my own. The club looked after me really well. They gave me a flat in a, in a place called Cronulla, right on the beach. It was oh, yeah, amazing. Yeah. I had a car. Yeah, I remember the captain, Jared Burke, who was a bloody good cricketer actually, saying, you know, do you like overs, mate? 
to like bowling <laughs> overs. I was like, yeah. He was like, right, okay. So they got their money's worth out of me. I bowled a lot of overs, but I, went, I did really well over there. And I think historically, there's a lot of um, English cricketers have gone over there, far bigger names than me, and struggled in grade cricket um, in their more formative years. So I went over and I did really well. I, I remember at one point, I'd, I think I'd, three out of four games I'd got, I'd taken five. <laughs> I also remember... So that gave me confidence from a cricket perspective, but physically as well. I remember sitting down with Mick before I went and he, he just said, um, don't rest on your laurels. You've had a good start, but make sure you work hard over there. I was like, yeah, 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 okay. Um, and then he said, uh, have they sorted your gym membership? I said, yeah, 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 I've sorted their gym membership. <laughs> they hadn't. But what I decided to do, I've always been quite stubborn about my prep. Um, I decided that I was just going to run 5k pretty much every day you know for five days a week and do a load of press-ups and sit-ups and that was it so quite old school yeah. um so that's what i did and i came back probably never to this day ever been as fit as i was at that point um and feeling as confident as i was at that point so coming into the 2013 season i was sort of on top of the world i ended up as you say having my best ever season and then um yeah finding myself on an ashes tour as a as a net bowler and this was probably the start of my England journey really because when Mick rang me on my birthday 25th of October I said do you want to go on the Ashes tour next week I said yeah go on then. <laughs> um, and uh, got hung up and said to my as I say now wife I was lying in bed next to her I said I'm, I'm going to Australia next week she couldn't believe it went for a month myself and Tamar Mills and I, I had an opportunity one day at the SCG they were playing a, a warm-up game for the Ashes and I found myself sat in the stand next to Jeff Miller, who was chairman of selectors at the time. Yeah. Andy, Andy Flower was head coach. Jeff Miller, I'm sat next to Jeff Miller. I said, Jeff, um, why have you not picked me for T20 for England yet? He said, well, you know, you're on the radar. I said, I said, have a look at the stats, Jeff. No one that you've picked in the last two years is better than me. I'm better than all of them. Have a look at my numbers. Which looking back, quite a ballsy thing to say really, but um, the next the next limited overs tour I was on it and that was to the West yeah. Indies that you know the following spring so you know sometimes I guess you have to if you find yourself in a situation like that you've got to maybe have the balls to take that opportunity to to push your case you know yeah so that that tour you actually went on to West Indies you didn't actually play on that tour did you so you, you went on the tour and didn't end up playing and then you were also traveling reserve uh for the ICT 20 World Cup in Bangladesh as well mm. obviously that must have been great but probably equally as frustrating being on the sidelines so close yet probably so far as well yeah so that tour to the west indies was a 16-man squad the world cup to bangladesh that followed it was a 15-man squad as all icc tournaments are and i was the one that going into that west indies tour i knew i wasn't in the 15 for the world cup but they said they wanted to take me to the west indies with a view to a having me as a reserve and b for future limited overs cricket for england so um I sort of knew, really, looking back, going into that West Indies tour, that I was unlikely to feature because they were gonna they were gonna play the guys who were gonna go to the World Cup straight yeah. afterwards. We had three ODIs and three T20s. Again, uh, you know, if if England at that time had been picking their best team, in my opinion, I would have been in it. Um, but understandably, they were preparing for a World Cup, so I didn't I didn't feature. But fond memories of the trip still. Um, you know, going on boat trips and. I've still got photos, as I say, on my phone of yeah of that trip, and my best mate came over hoping to watch me play my England debut, and I didn't. But, uh, <laughs> and Avril, my wife, came over, and yeah, it was uh, it was a really special time. And then your debut did follow that tour uh, versus Scotland, mm. um, which actually turned out to be a T20 reduced overs game. Um, mm. Being obviously more of a T20 specialist, was that 
quite good for you in a way. Yeah, so after that World Cup, Ashley Giles, who was the, the white ball coach at the time, sort of parted company with England. And Morsey got the job. And the first game of the following summer, I think it was probably Pete's first game in charge, was Scotland at Aberdeen. I'd actually played at Aberdeen for Leeds Uni once, um, which was good. But I went up there and it was an ODI and I wasn't going to be playing, to be honest. And then when it got rain reduced, um, they decided to bring me in for Wokesy, um, who I think they saw as a you know more of a, 50 over bowler at the time so yeah I made my debut and it was I just remember it was uh, soaking wet underfoot you know you just slipping all over the place but I think it was such a huge occasion for Scottish cricket that they just tried their best to yeah. um, get the game on I don't think I got a wicket from memory you've probably got my figures there have you? No I haven't actually won that one but I, no I don't think you did uh... I remember I took a catch which is a collector's item um, <laughs> but um yeah, and then and then we went on to, I think the Oval was it to play Sri Lanka. Yeah, which was a T. Uh, so you played a T twenty next against Sri Lanka, like you said. Uh, again, being pick of the bowlers, uh, four mm. overs, two for twenty six, including eleven dots, um, which mm. is just you know that's almost two overs of dots in a four over spell. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, it was uh, that. That was again when I look back on my career, one of my sort of fondest memories that day, really, because that was the day that I went home after the game and thought. As you always do, whenever you step up a level as you go through, you're always thinking, am I going to be good enough at yeah. the next level? Whether that's from you know, club cricket to county under 12 to academy to uni to first-class debut to international. Um, and I knew that night, sat in the hotel bar, that, yeah, I'm good enough. I can do it. You know, they had Jaya Saria, um, Sangakara, Dilshan. They were a serious team. Um, yeah. Dilshan was my first wicket, actually. I bowled him. I remember the first ball I bowled at him, he scooped me. Still scooped me for four. So I was under the pump and Ian Gould was the umpire. And I remember him saying to me as well, he said, um, that was nearly a no ball as well. Watch your front foot. So I'm walking back to my mark, second ball of the game, full house at the Oval. Thinking, God, I've gone for four off one ball. It was nearly a no ball. And then, <laughs> thankfully, I just produced this ball that's just nipped across him and, and clipped the top of off stump and was sort of away then, really. Played some of the ODIs as well that followed that. Yeah, so I listed some of those. So the ODI mm. series, impressive figures in there. Mm. The first game, it was five overs, two for 20, uh, including the wicket of Sangakara. Second game was 10 overs, 359. We followed that up with 10 overs, four for 55, including two maidens, and the wicket of Pereira and Jay Wardner. Um, that series, mm. again, like you said, it's almost like you belong there. Uh, I think in that, mm. also that same game, the 455, I think you also had a run out. <laughs> so it's a bit of a ball match. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um... I mean, that was just the time, you know, such, again, a, a, an amazing time in my life because I remember my wife, now wife, um, had been made redundant around that time. So she sort of came down and for that series was sort of coming around, yeah. as a lot of the wives and girlfriends do. She was able to because she wasn't working. We didn't have kids at the time. So we were just traveling around the country to these these five-star hotels and playing international cricket and journalists ringing me and god i just you know just thinking wow I'm, I'm living my dream here um and i proposed to avril during that series as well at st james's park in london so very very special time yeah so you actually finished that series with with nine wickets joint second in the uh in the series obviously impressive stats but then after that your sort of chances were fairly limited um was mm. that a case of the emergence of other bowlers or just almost like your face didn't sort of fit at that time can't remember exactly what happened between that series and then we played India, didn't we, later in yes. the summer. Yeah. Um, 
and I only played one ODI and I got panned. But I don't know why it, that was like the fourth ODI. I think I can't remember the the exact reasons I didn't get picked. To be honest with you, I think it might have been something to do with maybe Jimmy Anderson being available again, and maybe he wasn't available for the. No, he was. I don't know is the honest answer. I yeah. can't remember, but I found myself I found myself carrying the drinks anyway for most of that series, and then came in for the again the T twenty. At the end, there was a T20 right at the end of the summer um, at Edgebaston. And this had been my, probably when I look back over my career, this had been my sort of top three days, I would say. Um, because I'd been panned there like a week before in the ODI. I hadn't played really international cricket since earlier on in the summer. I'd been pressing my case for a game. The day before the game, we're at Edgebaston, we practiced, um, had a shower, sat around, had a shower, got out of the shower, all the players had gone back to the hotel and the changing rooms at Edgebaston are enormous um, and you walk through into like the players gallery area where there's sofas and coffee machine and yeah. all this kind of stuff and, and a big glass wall at the back behind which there's coaches offices and Morsey was sat in there so again I you know, I went and knocked on the office doors have you got a minute said, yeah I said um, I said if you don't pick me tomorrow you're really missing a trick um, <laughs> because I've just I am absolutely nailing my skills in practice my back of the hand slow ball is coming out perfectly i'm nailing my yorker i've never felt more ready for a game just give you know give me a chance if you don't you, you, you know it's a big loss for you it's a bit similar to the jeff miller moment i suppose God, i don't even know if i'd have i'd do that now but anyway um i, I did i remember it and, and pete still remembers it to this day we, we often talk about it and I got picked. Yeah, we batted first. Uh, you've probably got the scorecard there. I think we got 160, 170, something like that. Uh, Morgie yeah. smacked a few at the end, I remember. And then in the second innings, just, but you know, we all bowled well, but I had, a, I had a really good day. And probably the most important part of the day was um, I bowled the 17th and 19th overs of our of the innings sort of my my happy place really cl- trying to close out a t20 that's that's what i've sort of built certainly in the second half of my career around and i was bowling at rayner and Doney. yeah i managed alongside wokesy to close out the game and got rayner out with a reverse swing in yorker and um closed out the game against Doney, who at the moment was yeah. at that time was you know in his pomp probably the best finisher in the world and god yeah what what a day you know just on cloud nine and um Went back to the hotel bar again that night and stood there and had a beer and thought, wow, you know, that's what a year this has been. That was the last international game of the summer. What a year this has been and what a great way for me to finish it, giving me again confidence that, that I can do it at that level. And it was it was funny, that was to be my last T20 international. So I played two, one against Sri Lanka, yeah. one against India. I did really well in both and never got picked again, which was a frustration for me, to be honest, because I played 10 ODIs and, and if anything, it should have been the other way around, really. I should have yeah. played 10 T20s and two ODIs, really. Um, if it had to be that balance so a shame really but that's the way it is yeah and then in 2016 you saw yourself partner up with Stuart Broad off the pitch this time uh, to create your own pub company the Cat and Wickets how did that sort of come about and is that sort of setting up for the the future or yeah so it came about because um, our first pub the Three Crowns is my local and um, the landlord and landlady were moving on so I tried to talk one one of my brothers into taking it. I think at the time he was in a bit of a crossroads of his career sort of thing. And um, he said, no, I can't. I can't. You know, they're just having a baby and stuff. So um, one of my other brothers said, why don't you just do it? I said, well, I can't. I'm a cricketer. He said, well, no, just employ a manager. So that got the cog going. And I thought, well, yeah, okay. So I don't, why not? This is sort of 
let's just close my eyes and jump um, and see what happens. And I'd always been very aware. I have always been very aware throughout my career of what I'm going to do after cricket because I know that there's such a huge amount of life outside that sort of cricket bubble. Yeah. So I thought maybe this is it. Maybe I'll start a little business. Who knows? Let's see. So I called a mate of mine who was running a very successful local gastro pub. I said, will you come and have a look? See what you think. Tell me if you think I'm mad. So he came over and had a look and he said, no, you're not mad. In fact, I'm in if you want me. So I said, yeah, okay. And then we called Brody. We were both mates with Brody. And we called Brody and said, do you want in? And he said, yes. And so the rest history, really. We set up the Cat and Wickets pub company. We opened that pub in August of 2016. And here we are in December 20, 2020. We've got two sites now. Um, and plans for a third in 2021. You're listening to Under the Covers, Guernsey's very own cricket podcast. We'll be back after the short break. That's the first wicket. Letizia is the one who strikes. He gives it a big celebration. He writes it up in a book. He notes it down and sends them off. You can add Manpreet Singh to that list. That's the breakthrough Letizia needed. That's the breakthrough Guernsey needed. And that's the breakthrough that Mark Ladder to my left wants. A big smile on his face. And a wonderful shot there. Have a drive for four. Stokes already finding the boundary twice in this game. Back onto the cricket then, so just jumping around a little bit. But 2018, another amazing year for you. You finished as the leading wicket-taker in the county championship again. And then at the end of that season, you actually renegotiated your uh, to a white ball contract only. This caused a little bit of a stir on Twitter. I remember uh, some keyboard warriors firing at you and you just shooting them down uh, <laughs> repeatedly on, on Twitter. Um, I think one of them was something about being a joke and it's not, oh, it's not fair. And you just said, well, if you got offered more money or a profession where you can prolong it, surely you'd do that. And they just didn't reply. <laughs> yeah. And ultimately that's, that's the cat. You know, I got to 2000 and end of 2018, actually late on in that season, it was quite a pivotal moment in my career. We were playing at, up at Headingley in a T20. It was the last group game of the North group. The winner went through to the quarterfinals. The loser was out. Dan Christian went out at the toss and said, I don't know if it was a slip of the tongue or what, but he said, oh, talking through the team, he said, oh, we've got Harry, obviously, um, in my opinion, the best death bowler in the world. I hadn't played for England for four years, but, you know, a lot of people watching probably didn't even know who I was, um, probably, you know, spat the dinner out at the TV and the commentators were sort of taking the mick a little bit, you know, you know, bum is not bad, you know, all this kind of chat and um, fair enough. But what it did is, you know, whether it was right or wrong what he said, probably wrong, but, what it did is it, it focused attention on me. And fortunately for me, that night, I had a really a really good night at the office on TV after Dan had said that and the commentators were there for them focusing on me. I remember bowling the last over of their innings and it was Kane Williamson who had just come back from, had just got a purple cap at the IPL. Yeah. Uh, and Brezzi, who hits a clean ball. And um, I went for one run off the bat and I was nailing my Yorkers, wide Yorkers, straight Yorker, back of the hand slow ball, whatever. And for whatever reason, they couldn't they couldn't lay a bat on it. I walked off the pitch and thought, I mean, as you always, when you've had a good game, you walk off and you sit down and change it. You think, wow, yeah, great. Um, it's one of the best feelings ever. Um, but I don't think I quite realised at that time what what an impact that night was going to have on my life. Yeah. Because within within probably a month or six weeks of that night, um, I had an IPL contract, a PSL contract a big bash contract and a T10 contract. And yeah, so it was, a, it was around about that time at the, when I was in Australia, really in, um, in December of, of that year that I thought I'm going to focus on this format. It's my best format. I'm never going to play test cricket. I'm not good enough. If I'm honest, I'd, I'd lost a bit of the love for it. Um, and I felt that I could, 
earn more money and, and lengthen my career um, and also free up more time during the English summer to focus on my business and spend time with my family. You know, I had a yeah. son by this point. And um, so for so many different reasons, not just you know, the headline grabber is, you know, he's, he's done it because he wants to be rich or whatever, but um, it was more, you know, there were so many factors and so I made the decision to retire from Red Bull. And yeah, I mean, I cop a bit of abuse on social media, but I sort of invite it a bit as well. I'm a bit of a smart ass on there. But I mean, with that as well, is you probably like the sort of first one to do that. Now, a lot of people have followed suit. So it's, it's obvious that that's, and, and it is a lot of people, someone like Luke Wright has done the same uh, towards mm. the back end of his career. He's prolonging his career. Uh, he's still delivering decent numbers in, in white ball cricket. I think he tops mm. up batting this year. So, you know, mm. you look at, look at players like that, obviously getting opportunities. Um, the Melbourne mm. Renegades one I wanted to touch on because you spoke then about signing for them. Obviously, you partnered up with Dan Christian again there. Um, so you mm. may have had a, an influence getting you across. <laughs> you played eight games along the way and you actually won the Big Bash. How did you find that? Was that a completely different sort of T20 comp to the English one? Um, yeah. Yeah, in some ways. I mean, it really sort of suits me over there in some ways. You wouldn't expect the pitches to necessarily suit a bowler like me, but the out the outfields do um, because um, they're big. You know, so you bowl your slower ball and, and it gets smacked up in the air and there's someone under it, whereas in a small county ground, it lands 10 rows back. Um, Dan had been, Dan had been trying to get me to the various franchises that he'd been playing for, for a couple of years, because he recognized the value that I could bring to a team. Dan actually was at that time at the Renegades with Andrew McDonald, who was head coach, who I'd played with in 2011 when we won it with Leicestershire. So Macca knew, and I knew that Macca rated me because um, it was him that got me in the team. Um, At the time, I remember him, I bowled at him in the nets early on in the season or early on in his first season at Leicester. And I was literally an out and out drifting along in the second team guy at that time. And I remember him saying to um, Phil Whittakes, I think it was the coach at the time, I remember Macca just saying, he's got to play. This bloke's got to play. Left armour, bowls good pace because uh, I did back in those days, believe it or not. He's got to play. So so I knew that I had a bit of history with Macca as well. Um, they had an analyst who, who I think I'd worked up some stats that suggested that I'd probably be a decent signing at that time and um, all those things into the melting pot meant that they signed me um, for the second half. So it was Usman Shinwari for the first half and then me yeah. for the second half. They were sort of hedging their bets a little bit. Um, I remember Maka telling me over a beer at one point, you know, it was sort of whoever does best will, will bring you back next year as well sort of thing. Shinwari did really well, actually, for the first eight games. So I was sort of feeling the heat a little bit because I was there for most of it. Um, sat in the stands watching and then obviously I came in yeah I mean it just couldn't have gone much better um, you know, obviously nervous I played international cricket but a fair bit of time before I had a little sniff of T10 in front of an empty ground in Abu Dhabi but here I was in Australia in these sort of stadiums playing in the big bash a competition that I'd sort of admired from afar for so many years yeah. um, such an amazing competition and uh, my first game was at a place called Geelong I didn't Bowled brilliantly. I bowled okay. I remember I got Brendan McCullum out right towards the end. Um, but I bowled okay enough to know that, okay, I can I can sort of do this. And then I think it was my second game. I got man of the match against the Sydney Thunder in Sydney. Two for not many and should have been four as well. I dropped two catches in two balls off my own bowling. Um, and But the game was already gone by that point. But um, I got a bit of abuse for it. But... Um, yeah, and getting that man of the match award, then I'm, you know, again, it's one of those other moments in your career where you think, yeah, you know, I've got, I've got this. 
Yeah, you, you missed last season for injury. Uh, are you mm. are you due to go back out for the next one that's coming in a couple of weeks? Uh, no, no. So I went back again last year uh, for the full season and tore my hamstring on the 27th of December against the Strikers and then flew home the next day anyway, as was no, that night, actually, as was always the plan to be at my brother's wedding on New Year's Eve. Right. Um, I was home for 48 hours and then back down to Australia again. Crazy, really, looking back. Um, <clears throat> as soon as I got back down there, straight in an MRI scanner and I had a, a, a bad tear. So I thought they'd probably send me home, but they, they asked me to stay for the remainder of the competition in case we made finals because I would have been just about fit in time. Right. Um, alas, we didn't make finals. Um, and no, they hadn't re-signed me. So, and that, you know, that's fine. The coach had changed. It's not McDonald anymore. It was Klinger. He wanted to go in a different direction. I hadn't set the world alight in the games I played before I tore my hamstring. So, you know, it's fine. No hard, hard feelings there at all. It was, it was a great time I had over there and went on also to, to play in the Pakistan Super League in that winter. And then um, the following summer, I guess, in some ways vindication of my Red Bull retirement because for the last month of the English season, I was over in the Caribbean playing in the CPL rather mm-hmm. than um, traipsing around playing championship cricket and, you know, <laughs> in England. Um, on the motorway it sounds uh, terrible being in the West Indies when you could be up and down the motorway (laughs) yeah yeah, exactly but it just gave me you know gave me an opportunity on a stage that I just wouldn't have I wouldn't have been able to do had I had I not retired from Red Bull cricket went over there and again you know just ended up in the team of the tournament and we won it and and Barbados won the competition and I played a key role in that and the conditions suited me really well I was quite fortunate in that regard and I played in the IPL the, the, the previous winter and yeah, so I, I listed in your IPL debut, you couldn't have gone much better. Um, so you debuted yeah. for Kolkata Knight Riders against Rajasthan Royals. You took up, you took two for 25 and picked up man of the match along the way. I mean, that's some start. Yeah, yeah, I sort of skipped that bit out. But yeah, that was, um, again, one of those days where you sort of go back to the hotel and you think, God, I am good enough. <laughs> it's funny. I've always felt a bit of an imposter, really, in some ways. <laughs> then your career's punctuated by these days where you go, go home and you think, wow you know i can't believe i've just done that but 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 it just fills you with confidence that you you know you're good enough at that level i mean t20 cricket doesn't get any bigger than the ipl it's bigger than international cricket and better than international cricket you know arguably better certainly some of the batting lineups i'd say were better than would be better than some international teams and and the show you know the size of it the magnitude of it the crowds yeah i suppose um, this year's a little bit different but when you played must have been Incredible. It's, mm. I always find when I ever watch the IPL when there is fans, uh, is there's a kind of like a, a dull buzz the whole game. Like people, you can mm. just hear noise all the time. Yeah, you can't hear anything really. It's funny. My home ground, Eden Gardens, is seventy odd thousand there. When Dhoni or Kohli come to play, yeah. they get cheered louder than any of the home <laughs> than any of the home players. But, um, but the fans are still incredibly passionate. You know, when Andre Russell walks out to bat or whatever, you just can't. You know, it's just. It's noise like you've never heard anywhere else. And um so proud to have played eight games in that. And what brought me onto that is at the CPL a few months later, I'm playing for Barbados. There's a team there called Trimbago Knight Riders, owned by the same owners as KKR, my IPL team. Right. Um, we played them as it worked out through the knockouts and stuff. We, I played against them three times, did really well in all three games. Brendan McCullum was coach. Um, same management structure and what it meant was that off the back of that I then got retained um, right. by KKR so j- again just further I guess vindication of that Red Bull retirement because yeah. 
I was in the Caribbean. I was yes, I was earning some good money. Uh, I won another trophy. I had an amazing experience, but it also led to me being retained by KKR, which I don't think I would have been um, yeah. had it not been for those CPL performances. Vindication, I guess, of that decision, I suppose. Yeah, and then most recently, uh, I think within the last couple of weeks, you've just signed a one-year extension with Knotts. Do you still feel you can offer quite a lot uh, for many more years to come? Uh, obviously, with the, with the shorter formats. Yeah, it's been. A, this has been a frustrating year, though. I mean, I've I had lined up um, the IPL in April, the Blast in May, the Hundred in July, and then the CPL again in sort of September, October. Yeah, um, and via a combination of COVID and then an injury, a shoulder injury, which required surgery. That's all sort of fallen by the wayside. So I was ready to go to the IPL, had a jab, and then COVID hit. We all went into lockdown. Everything got delayed for months. When I came back to bowling again in July, August time, the shoulder just the shoulder just didn't respond at all. Um, and the surgeon just said, look, we've been um, circling the drain for a while here. You've got to, we've got to do it. You know, you gotta, you gotta, you can't, you can't. And I, at this point, you know, I couldn't. Just doing that would have hurt quite excruciatingly. So I had the surgery in September. So, yeah, a combination of that and COVID has meant that I've played no cricket. In fact, I think my last game was that Big Bash game against the Strikers, believe it or not, mm-hmm. uh, a year ago almost to the day. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I've just signed a new contract with Knots, and I'm working back towards playing the Blast again next year. And Hopefully the hundred. That's all a little bit up in yeah. the air at the moment as well. But been um, a funny old year. Yeah, you, you talk about earlier. You spoke about being very methodical in your practice, and you like things to be a certain way. Uh, can you just talk to us a little bit about sort of your practice? Uh, what, what does your sort of regular net session look like? Uh, and then also, what does your sort of pre-match look like as well? So become quite quite a man of routine, and I think a lot of people do this as they progress and as they improve. That they work out a routine that works. Um, what it allows me to do my pre-match prep the day before and on the day of the game takes away on all, all chance of any nerves because I know that there's I know that I prepare in a world-class way and therefore there's nothing more I can do yeah you know so if I go into the game and I get smacked for 40 I sort of it's almost don't care anymore because I know that Actually, I've done everything I could have possibly done. It just wasn't, just didn't go my way. Rather than leaving a stone unturned, going into the game, getting smacked for fourteen, thinking, "Ah, should I have done this yesterday? Should I have done this this morning?" And you know, um, and that the way that looks is the day before the game. I mean, I never, I never t twenty anymore. I never bowl at batsmen in nets. I don't believe it's good practice. Yes, batters move around. Yes, should you practice with them going across the crease? Blah blah blah. I don't really buy into it because there's no consequence. You know, yeah. batters will just stand there and treat you like a bowling machine and they're just going to swing and swing and swing and you could knock the middle stump out of the ground three or four times and it just counts for absolutely nothing. They're still going to swing at the next ball and try and smack it into the stand. It's just, it just isn't good practice. It isn't realistic or good practice for me. So what I do is I have a, uh, I go and I get a cut strip and I've got a, a, a boundary cushion, like a triangular sort of boundary yeah. cushion, um, which I put on the crease line. I'll have a run around and a stretch and a warm up, And then when I start my bowling, um, I'll bowl six walkthroughs, six trot throughs. That's my bowling warm up. Then I'll bowl six hard length balls once I start off my full run. Six hard length, six cutters, six back of the handers. That's three overs. And I've got to hit the cushion 10 times, the York cushion 10 times. So um, sometimes that would take me 
uh, I think my best ever was 14 balls. Um, is, is that always a stock delivery as well hitting the cushion or is that a slower ball whatever variation you, you want to bowl always just full on stock Yorker right. yeah but varying between wide and straight yeah, um, yeah but yeah once I've got I've gone through my slower balls and executed them how I want to by the way out of the out of the six hard length six cutters and six back and handers I'll do half from over the wicket half from around the wicket as well right, okay and then with the Yorkers I'm going over round over, round, over, round, all the way through till I've hit the cushion 10 times. So sometimes it takes me, like I say, my best 14 balls and it's taken me up. It's taken me, God, 40 balls before. Yeah. But again, I sort of don't care. Yeah. I don't get frustrated if I'm not hitting it particularly because if it takes me 40 balls to do it, I obviously needed the practice. At the end of it, I feel ready, which is as important as anything, feeling like yeah. you're ready up here. It puts a bit of pressure on you having that target at the end of your practice puts a bit of pressure on you. So it's like a self-policing pressure exercise as well. Don't need a coach. Um, and there are no variables, you know, there's no, there's no batsman running across the crease or paddle sweeping or, you know, have you executed? Have you nailed the Yorker exactly where you wanted to nail it? Yes. Okay. If Joss Butler has stood there and he paddle sweeps it for six, fine. Good shot. But all you can do as a bowler is, is, run up and try and deliver the ball that you've, you've decided that is the best option at that time. Anything else yeah. that happens if you execute it is becomes tactical. It's a decision under pressure. So yeah, I love, I love that method of practice and it, it's been the way I've done it for a long time and it's the way I'll always do it. Um, and then game day, similar really, but just a, a much more shortened version. So um, hour and a half before the game, go out, have a bowl, go through similar routines, but as I say, just shorten down, trim down, back upstairs, bite to eat, whatever get ready, go down, team warm up normally about sort of 40 minutes before the start and a kick about and try not to do too much on game day really because yeah. you get, you know, I like to get the hard work done. I say hard work, never worked a day in my life, but I like to try and get the work done the day before the game really so that you, you can be as relaxed as possible on, on game day. And with your slower balls, obviously that's becoming more and more a thing in the game now, particularly in T20. How did you sort of go about learning those skills? Was it just a case of just practicing variations and then just like really hammering that one skill till you've actually nailed it so i always had the cutter back in the hand slower ball i developed at leicestershire i was um i remember josh cobb and i going over to the nets during a game might have been a championship game maybe we were 12th and 13th man or something i don't know we went over to the nets and i said i'm just going to practice this back of the hand slower ball tell me what you think worked on it a bit with him that day and i remember him saying god yeah that's there's something in that and it was always i'm fortunate the way i am built physically it was all quite flexible um, yeah. so it was always a delivery that sort of came quite naturally to me to be honest that being said I I practiced it a lot before I got it out in a game before I had the balls to do it in a game I remember the other guy who really backed it was Jack the Toit we had a guy called Jack the Toit playing for Leicester at the time he was a hell of a player from South Africa he kept saying to me in practice you've got to bowl this in games you've got to start using it and the first time I used it was um, we were playing Kent in a I think it was a Pro 40 game at Grace Road and they needed about 10 off the last 10 overs, like two down. They were absolutely thrashing us and, and Hoggy chucked me the ball. And uh, Steve-O was batting. Steve-O was the first bloke I bowled it at. And I just thought, you know, this game's gone. I might as well have a go. So I did and it came out perfectly. Didn't get him out, but deceived him. You know, came out, dipped nicely, whatever. Blah, blah. And that was it then, really. I started bowling it from that point on. And I've subsequently had the conversation with various other bowlers about it. I remember Luke Wood doing it for the first time a couple of years ago, playing at Trent Bridge in a game. And, the game had gone. I think we'd already put in our favour. We were we were cruising to victory, I think, and 
he bowled it for the first time ever in a game and got a wicket. Um, yeah. And that's the time, really. You practice it until you're reasonably confident with it, but then you pick your moment. You know, yeah. Don't don't yeah. do it for the first time in a pressure situation in a tight <laughs> in a tight game. Yeah, no, it sounds fascinating. Um, is coaching something you'd maybe get into in the future? Obviously, you've got quite a lot to offer with all these skills, particularly with T20. Yeah, I don't know is the honest answer. I think I've always quite fancied getting out of the bubble for a few years. Yeah. Um, I feel like cricket is very, very much a bubble and there's so much more to the world outside of it. And I want to go out and, and get stuck into some of that. But at the same time, I've always been a big thinker of the game. I feel like I've got a huge amount of experience now, particularly in sort of death bowling and white ball cricket, um, which is something that could be a value to to a sort of T20 franchise so I wonder whether I don't think I'll ever go down the route of sort of head coaching or any of that kind of stuff but I wonder whether some some bowling consultancy yeah with various teams might be something that um that I look into as and when as and when the time comes but I'm not sure to be honest yeah and then just to finish a couple of quick questions so who's the quickest bowler you've ever faced so we didn't really talk too much on your batting but you did mention that you used to be able to bat and then it sort of just fell by the wayside yeah, God. Yeah, I mean, anyone faster than 80 miles an hour is quick to me. Probably Tino Best or Stuart Meeker, the two that spring to mind. Um, I faced Jofra. Jofra, yeah, Jofra, he'd be, he was pretty quick. Um, yeah. yeah, God, horrendous. Hate it. Absolutely <laughs> hate it. I start, you know, once you stop loving doing it, um, it's a slippery slope then, you know, and I, and I did love batting while I was, when I was young, but as soon as I stopped, stopped yeah. loving it and started hating it, that was it. And I've never been able to really um, get that love back. And then who's the toughest bowler to face? So it might not necessarily be someone quick. It might just be someone who's, you know, just deceives you. For me, it would be someone quick. Yeah, you know, so I'll tell you who's not renowned for being particularly quick, but probably the most skillful bowler I've faced. Um, albeit I didn't last long. Um, Steve McGoffin. I mean, you know, the guy, the guy, he could just, he was a magician at the time that I, that I was playing against him. And, uh, you know, in swing, out swing, yeah. perfect line and length you just you just couldn't I mean me you know top order batters couldn't lay a bat on him so I had no chance like he was playing a, a game with Bobby and out swinging and beat the outside edge Bobby and in swinging and hit me in the box and I'll never forget Nashi was at Nashi was at mid-wicket just, just creasing just absolutely <laughs> loving it found it hilarious and then found himself in the same changing room as me a year later but um, yeah probably probably Steve McGuffin I suppose yeah and then who's the hardest player to bowl at? The best player I've bowled at was, would be Virat Kohli. The guys who I dislike bowling at the most are the likes of Joss Butler, James Taylor when he played, although fortunately I was always in his team. These guys who are able to move around the crease so easily, yeah. get so low and paddle sweep and manoeuvre the ball around. I would much rather run in and bowl at Kyron Pollard who I know, or, or Andre Russell, who I know are just going to stand there and try and bang me back over my head or over yeah. the wicket. Because I feel like over the course of time, I'm going to have more success than not against those guys with my variations in my, in my tactical now, I suppose, yeah. and setting, setting the correct fields. Someone, someone, else, someone else like that, Dan Christian, just seems to be able to lap, sweep and paddle. I mean, he's not exactly the youngest of guys now and he's still tearing it up. Like. Obviously, he's always yeah, been in your got, team. He's always played for knots, hasn't he? So, yeah, he got a thirty-three ball hundred night before last in a, in a big yeah. bash warm-up game yeah. for the yeah for the Sixers. So, he's still got it. He uh, the thing with Dan is is everyone sees him 
come forward and almost like play that like meet yeah. it on the full and sweep it over mid wicket or square leg for six. So then everyone thinks, well, we've got a ball wide to Dan. Well, I've never played with anyone who hits the ball so far over cover or yeah. over point as Dan. Yeah. Um, and I'll never forget the T20 final in 2017 um, when Ollie Stone tried to bowl wide Yorkers at Dan. He just kept slapping him over the offside, and I think he went for 24 off that last over, and it yeah. really got us up to a sort of unassailable total, really. We did the same um, this year, didn't he? I think he won the semi-final within an over. And he yeah. Like 30 off the over and he just kept them. I think it was Livingston, he kept them just putting him in the stands. Yeah, yeah just released the pressure. Just completely yeah. released the pressure, didn't he? Yeah, he must be... I don't think I've ever bowled it. I have, I tell a lie. I've bowled it in once in a game. Um, only a couple of balls. But he must be a nightmare as well, to be fair. Yeah. And then what's the best ground you've played at? I mean, you can't... Sounds a bit cliche, but you can't look too far beyond Lords. You know, been fortunate to play there a fair few times and win two cup finals there, which is very special. Trent Bridge, still to this day, when I drive in the gates, I just, you know, having come from somewhere like Grace Road, which don't get me wrong, I have a fondness towards. Um, Trent Bridge is a very, very special place. Eden Gardens in India, yeah, you know, like nowhere else in the world. And, and Marvel Stadium in Melbourne will always have such a special place in my heart because going over there and winning the Big Bash and Winning that final against the against the Melbourne Stars in front of forty odd thousand was just, yeah, again one of the best days of my life. So that is a particular ground that will always be special for me as well. And you may have just just touched it there, but your favourite memory in cricket, if you could pick one, maybe I don't know, it's going to be tough, but yeah. Well, I said earlier, I've got the in the T Twenty against India at Edgbaston was in my top three. The other two in my top three would be Big Bash final, uh, beating the Stars from. I mean, we were dead and buried. Yeah, they were like they were like ninety for none chasing one forty, and we somehow bowled them out. Um, remarkable game of cricket. Uh, and third would be the T Twenty Blast Finals Day two thousand and seventeen. I got three for in the semi and four for in, four for seventeen in the final. And the key thing is that we won as well. So yeah, yeah. You know, you, any day that you win a trophy is an incredibly special day. But for me to know that I'd made a huge contribution to that win was. Um, was was really special so those three days would probably stand out to me in my memory and then your favorite coach if you could pick one on that's another another quite tough question yeah it is i think morsey's absolutely brilliant probably if i really had to stick my neck on the line the best or my favorite coach that i've played under would be andrew mcdonald yeah um the renegades coach the year that we won the big bash now He's the Aussie assistant coach and the Rajasthan Royals coach and the Birmingham Phoenix coach. And he is just a genius. He just, his knowledge and understanding of the game and the psychology behind the game, but the tactics behind the game, his selections, the way he speaks to and deals with the players and the way, despite all of that, he's so relaxed and just disarms all the pressure and gets it. He just gets it never puts you under pressure. He just he is the best in the business, that bloke. And um, there's a reason that he's coaching Australia and yeah. um, half the franchise teams in half the big franchise tournaments around the world because he's, um, he's just brilliant. I remember we played, the year we won it, the Big Bash, we were playing the semi against the Sixers at Marvel. And around about 150 had been a good score for the whole season um, at Marvel. And we turned up that night. It was the same pitch. We always played on one of two pitches at Marvel because it's not a cricket yeah. ground. They're dropping. And um, I remember going out and looking at it and I was like, oh, similar sort of similar sort of stuff? And he went, no. Nah. What do you mean? He said, it'll be 180 tonight. 
really what makes you say that it was like blah, 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 show me a couple of bits on the pitch and you see the lights will be on and the roof might be on or whatever blah 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 anyway they got 180 and we knocked them off like in last ball <laughs> so he's just god yeah he's got something he's got something special Maka has he's, uh, yeah. he's very very good and then finally your, your best mate in cricket tough one probably probably um, and Steve Mullaney I'd say they're the two guys that that I've spent most time with probably um, for the majority of my career, you know, rooming with. And then in the latter years, when I, I, when we all had our own rooms, just um, going out for dinner every night, all these away trips, celebrating trophy wins. Yeah, uh, probably those two. And then obviously Dan Christian has been a huge influence on my career. And um, and I'm obviously now in business with Brody as well. So <laughs> met some amazing people from lots of different walks of life. And um, yeah, I wouldn't change it for the world, really. No, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, it's been really interesting to chat to you. Obviously, uh, modern-day cricket, um, the way it's going. Uh, we, we've just released in Guernsey, we're going to do a GPL. Uh, we did one years ago. That's how we got in contact with Franksy. Um, so, you know, yeah. you never know. You might have to come over as a, one of the pros for our GPL. That's it. Give me a call-up. Give me a call-up. <laughs> Perfect. No, thank you very much for taking your time out. Pleasure. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Guernsey Cricket Podcast. Remember to hit the subscribe button and keep listening. Shoot me.